0: Okay. Good morning. I'm gonna. um, There's there's a handout that um, Ron has. He'll give out a little bit. Um, We're gonna look at Obadiah and Jonah this morning. Um, If you missed Amos last week, I'm sorry. There won't. There's no audio recording of Amos um, because we forgot to push record, and so Amos is lost um, forever. Yep, we are. I pushed record this morning, so we pick up the message for those uh, people who listen online that they missed Amos. Um, but thematically, they're not missing a bunch in biblical theology as far as how it ties to the themes, just missing that book. Um, but the themes are, are always pretty similar as we go through the 12. So let me pray, and we'll jump in to Obadiah and Jonah. Father, we are thankful um, this morning for the chance to spend time in your word, um, to spend time thinking about who you are and what you've done, um, the way in which you have cared for us, um, speaking your word through your prophets for the sake of your people, the clarity of your message as it unfolds in um, progressively into the person and work of your Son, um, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, um, and the pouring out of your Spirit, who is our comforter and advocate. Um, we pray that we would continue to trust in you, um, approaching you through your Son and in the Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, we're starting this morning the Obadiah. I'll try to make this bigger up here. Um, see if it went... Boom, okay. Um, Starting this morning with Obadiah. Obadiah is written in the 6th century B.C. If you guys notice that, um, as you're following through the various minor prophets, they're written in very different time periods. Does anybody remember when Amos was written? Amos was written right before the fall of the upper kingdom of Israel. Good. So Amos is written before the fall of the northern kingdom. So we're talking about maybe... 752, so, 753 um, to 760 BC is when Amos is written. So um, now you come to Obadiah and you drop down to around 586 BC. So notice we are coming down to a, you know, we've, we've basically progressed nearly 170 years or so um, when we get to Obadiah. So it's, Obadiah is written then. Anybody know, historically, when's Obadiah written? After what's occurred? Anyone know? The yeah, the fall of the southern kingdom. Takes the youngest kid in the room to remember that. But well, that's exactly right. It's after the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon, right? So you're, you have the fall of the northern kingdom, Israel to Assyria, um, the exile of um, of the southern kingdom under Babylonia. So or, or uh, so we're Bab- or Babylon. So we're we're here in this um, time period. But let's look at this vision, keeping in mind our themes. What are our primary themes in the uh, in the twelve or the minor prophets? Anybody remember what are some of the primary themes? The day of the Lord. Okay, the day of the Lord is a primary theme. Right, And the day of the Lord is coming with a kind of judgment and salvation, so you have this eschatological day of the Lord. I think you have to be careful, I've told you this before, that, that you understand there are, if you will, um, more than, there's more than one event that is ascribed to the day of the Lord because you have these kind of historical manifestations of it, um, and, and eschatology is always built on top of history. In other words, there's a historical event occurring and then your eschatology is built on top of that um, historical event so you have history eschatology but the day of the lord can't be just always hammered down to one event right um, though there is this coming day of the lord that all these sort of if you will um, kinds of days of the lord pointing forward to so if day of the lord is a major theme in the minor prophets what else is a major theme? Any others you guys remember? So the teaching's been effective so far. Um, the prosecuting of the case against unfaithfulness. Okay, good. Okay, so Israel's unfaithfulness. Um, so you've got Israel's unfaithfulness to what? Israel's sin to? Against, if you will, the law or the Mosaic covenant. Okay? Yep, yep. And particularly, thank you, with regard to this sin of idolatry. Right? Um, All right, so that's the major issue. When I say Israel there, I mean Israel and Judah, incidentally, both the northern and southern kingdom. So you have that as a major issue. You're talking about the day of the Lord. And again, when we say the day of the Lord, remember this issue of history. You have this historical story. Whoops. This historical story that is pointing you to eschatology or what's to come. Okay? Um, I'm going to run out of space. And then other themes. Uh, Okay? And uh, under this, we're going to just say um, judgment. And salvation. And this is all tied to this idea of Israel's, as Tim just said, Israel's restoration. Okay, keep that in mind. So Israel's going to be restored. They're going into exile. Judgment. They're going to be saved. Restoration. Make sense? Okay. Um, And then anything else? Any other big themes? Minor prophets they actually show up in the major prophets as well. The 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 coming Davidic king, right? This kind of coming um, David or Davidic king, okay? Um, so that 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 comes through often. So keep that in mind. So we have those themes. Now they're all touched on differently in each of the minor prophets are just going to emphasize something different in that regard. Um, I also was pointing to you guys to the fact that each of the minor prophets in some ways is developing those themes um, in, a, in a manner related to one another. And so we're going to see how Obadiah and even Jonah will relate to Amos. Jonah will relate to Obadiah uh, and so forth as we move through some of these minor prophets. So let's look at Obadiah together the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So let's, let's start there. Obadiah has a vision, we kind of have our title of the book, that's, that's where we get the name Obadiah. Obadiah has a vision, he's a prophet, it's just a one chapter uh, book doesn't take long to get through, Um, and that vision is concerning who? Who does it concern? Edom. Who's Edom? What's that? Yeah, Edom is the sons of Esau, or the nation that comes from Esau. Now, I told you guys last week in Amos, um, if you look at the page, probably right next to it, which is the end of Amos... um, and it says, verse 12 of chapter 9 of Amos, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. One of the things I pointed out to you is that, that Edom seems to function paradigmatically for Gentile nations. Okay, so it's, it's, there is Edom, but then there's also the way in which Edom um, functions as a paradigm for Gentile nations, we have to keep in mind. Um, and so we'll look more at that <clears throat> as we move along. But here's the title. The main issue is concerning Edom. And what's, what's it about? Destruction. Yeah, Edom's coming destruction. So, so notice that. The title, Ob- it's really the prophet Obadiah. And he's got a prophecy, a vision from the Lord, concerning the coming destruction of Edom. Okay. So, judgment's coming. Is judgment coming for Israel or for one of her enemies here? Good. Edom is one of the enemies of Israel. So, judgment for one of Israel's enemies, does Israel see that as good news? Yes. Right? Okay, if this is a people oppressing her, she sees it as good news. Well, we'll put it this way. If you... um, heard that judgment was coming in world war ii for nazi germany and you were um, british would you be excited about that yes of course or french or what have you You guys follow that's the kind of thing it's like oh good the day of salvation's come all right so um now let's look at these oracles against edom the oracles against edom will go from chapter two um let me see chapter two from verse two through verse 14/15. 15. 15 is kind of a crossover verse, but these oracles against Edom will come through 14, and really in 2 through 14. So let's look at them. And, and verse 3 and 4 makes up sort of one oracle, um, focusing on Edom's pride and the Lord's judgment. Look at 2. Behold, behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So you guys can follow the judgment coming on Edom, right? What does Edom think of themselves? What do they think of themselves? Yeah, we're invincible. We're, We're up here, we're lifted up above all others. We are. We think we're large and powerful, um, and he's saying, "I'm going to make you small." And you think you're exalted and lifted up? I'm going to bring you low. Right? All right. Now look at. Now we see plunder and deceit in verses five through seven. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been. How you have been destroyed would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You ha- have no understanding. In other words, the people they've been trusting are driving them out and setting traps underneath them. Right? So there, there's kind of a plunder and deceit. Um, this is sort of judgment coming against them. So they're going to be brought low. They're going to be deceived by the people they trust. They're going to be plundered by, if you will, the people they've made peace with in their minds. Now we'll see the judgment day fully coming in verses 8 through 9. Look, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden, Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Um, clear enough. How many of the men will be cut off by slaughter? Every man. Now, I want to come back and remind you guys of prophetic idiom. Remember I had this conversation about prophetic idiom? Okay? So... I want you to keep this in mind when you read prophetic literature. But when we talk about prophetic idiom, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? What's what's an idiom? Okay, it's a, it's a kind of it's a style of writing. So we'll say some kind of expression is idiomatic. You guys ever heard of that? Okay, um, there's there's a way of speaking, and a prophetic idiom is is often using what we might call this tool of, of um, hyperbole. Okay? You guys know hyperbole. Everyone's going to be there, right? Um, that's sort of exaggerating to make a point. Keep that in mind in the prophets because they often employ prophetic idiom. Jesus does as well, incidentally. Um, hyperbole, exaggerating to make a point, is not unusual in their kind of literature, right? Um, so that you'll come to a prophet and they'll say, every man will be cut off. There's not one honest man in the whole world, right? And yet, then he comes on and says, but the remnant shall remain, they're godly people. You're know, like, wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> you know, so you, what's happening there is the use of prophetic idiom. That's where we have to be really careful about how we read the prophets. Otherwise, we can tend to overread them. Every time we see this, from the smallest to the greatest, or the least to the greatest. And then we read that as absolutely everyone without qualification, and we miss the point. Okay? Rather than seeing the prophetic idiom. So we need to be careful about that. But look what he goes on. Let's look at the reasons for judgment. So, why so much judgment against Edom? Why so much judgment against Esau, if you will? Look at verse 10 through 14 we're going to see really the reasons for this judgment Uh, because of the violence done to your brother jacob shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever so what's what's the problem what's what's edom or esau done it's pretty simple anybody i'm not asking a trick question what's it say there in the first phrase Yep, your violence against your brother Jacob. Who's Jacob? It's Israel, right? Okay, so God's people, they've done violence against them. Now look at, look at what, how their violence came in, verses, in verse 11. On that day, you stood aloof. On, that di- on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. What was, what was Esau or Edom's violence against Jacob? What'd they do? They and they just stood and yep, they just stood and watched as, as foreign enemies plundered um, Israel, if you will, as they came in and plundered Jerusalem. They had no regard for their brother, right? Um, Yep, yep, that's exactly right. When Israel was wandering, they wanted to pass through Edom. Edom would not help them. Um, This comes back even to the story, if you will, not with Jacob and Esau specifically. I'm not talking genealogically, I'm not saying this, but it comes back to the same principle you see all the way back in Genesis 4, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, in fact, you are your brother's keeper, Um, but you refuse to be, Right? That's why Jesus becomes such a different kind of brother, because he'll say that he's the kind of brother in John fifteen who lays down his life for his friends, right? Uh, let's let's go on. So they have a passive observation. L- the Lord doesn't take lightly, incidentally, to just passivity as people are being plundered this way, right? Um, verse twelve. Um, and following, we're going to see them actually go beyond passivity to rejoicing in the fall um, of another. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Anybody see any repetitive language there? What are you hearing again and again? Do not. Do not do do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. And what is all the do nots about? What are they with regard to? What's the problem? What's, what's, What's Esau or Edom being... Commanded not to do. Rejoicing and gloating over yeah, rejoicing and gloating over the calamity of another. No, notice the sins here that are really being rebuked. You passively observe while evil's done to my people. You just kind of watch. You don't step in and do the right thing and help them, right? Um, it's it's. It's the classical, you know, sort of sit back and just watch it happen. Not my problem. Well, that's where I'm stepping next. And to take, nope, you're right. And to take it a a step further, not only are they not helping, but they're rejoicing in their fall. It's like they're taking pleasure in the fall of another. Right? Um, you, You guys probably know what this is like. I'm sure in some way. Um, All of us are are covetous, right? And I'm sure in some way, when there's someone you've coveted something uh, with regard to, you tend to find some joy in their misfortune or failure or fall. Um, This is the kind of thing that's happening on a national level here, right? Um, Okay, so he's rebuking that. So this is their... If you will, the judgment coming against Edom, the reason being they've basically sat by and passively observed um, their destruction, which makes them um, complicit in that, and they're rejoicing in their fall, which makes it even worse, right? Um, Shows shows a kind of covetousness um, in their hearts, which, by the way, Paul will call covetousness what? Idolatry, Right? Um, okay, so let's look at this third thing I said here, Israel and the nations. Verse 15, picking up on what Tim said earlier, verse 15 through 18, Edom is a paradigm for all nations. Remember I said that at the beginning, but notice how it leads off for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Do You guys notice that it's interesting. We just made a big switch, didn't we? We're talking about judgment against which nation? Edom. Edom. But now he says, the day of the Lord is what? Near upon all the nations. Okay? Remember, I've always... I've told you guys again and again. I want to emphasize this. History always becomes the foundation for eschatology. They're always... Telling you, here's a historical story. Now, let's pitch forward to eschatology. Right? That's why when you read the prophets, you feel like, I feel like I just went from a regional thing to a global thing and you often do. That's because history and eschatology in the prophets are always related to one another that way. So you're pitching back and forth in the prophets. You're reading a prophet it's like, I'm in history. Oh, no, I'm in global eschatology. I'm back in regional history. Well, I'm back in global eschatology. And you start to feel a bit schizophrenic as you read those books, right? Um, And if you don't recognize this prophetic idiom and hyperbole, you start to feel like, I'm going to destroy everyone. Well, I'm going to save these people. No one's righteous. This man's righteous. And you just start getting confused because you're over-reading the prophets, right? You're not understanding prophetic literature. Um, and so you need to be careful about that. So now he's pitched forward again. For as, look at why all the nations are going to be, and it's a kind of a, a payment in kind. As you have done, it shall be done to You. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This sort of payment in kind or reaping what you sow in some sense, right? And look what comes around. Oh, you know what we, we, what goes around, comes around kind of a thing, okay? For as you've drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. In other words, who's winning the war coming up? Right? Um, They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Do you guys just catch that? How many survivors will there be? In the house of Esau. Zero survivors. So Edom, which is parad- paradigmatic for all the nations, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, right? will have how many survivors? None. So how many Gentile survivors, will, how, many, well, how many Edomite survivors will there be in, in the day of the Lord? None. How many Gentile survivors will there be? None. Okay. How many nations will survive? None. right? Okay, Now, look on. Those of the Negev, okay, that's talking about those from that region there, Israel and Judah, shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of, the host, of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sarephath, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So this Davidic kingdom is coming, in which they'll possess all the land, and the kingdom will belong to the Lord, and no Gentiles and no Edomites Will survive, but notice that language at the beginning. Those of the naked shall possess Mount Esau. Keep your hand there and just go back to um, Amos chapter eleven. I mean, Amos chapter nine. Sorry, and look at verse eleven. In that day, okay, we're speaking again to the day of the Lord. In that day, I will raise up the booth. Of David, that has fallen. In other words, we're talking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. So none of them will survive, not one survivor among Edom or the nations. Except the remnant. Do you guys follow that? So all uh, the survivors, the remnant, and and you re- realize this text in Amos nine twelve gets picked up in Acts fifteen, and when the Gentiles are repenting and coming to faith, they quote nine, they quote Amos nine twelve and say, "Listen, it's being it's been fulfilled. The Gentiles coming into um, Israel is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom coming. Um, the day the Lord." Coming, if you will. Right? And so it's pointing forward. So that's why again I point you guys to the prophetic idiom. Keep that in mind. Um, It isn't incidental, right, to these texts. You have to keep following that. Now I point to that because what's fascinating is what comes next, which is the book of Jonah. We've just read we just finished the book of uh the book of Obadiah, and what's the fate of the nations? They're going to be destroyed. What has Esau or Edom done with regard to Israel's misfortune? Passively sat by and watched and kind of rejoiced in and enjoyed the destruction of Israel, a judgment coming upon Israel because of her idolatry. So here in Obadiah, you have the Edomites, please follow this as you come to Jonah, you have the Edomites rejoicing in the fall of Israel that's come upon her because of her own idolatry. They want to just sit back, if you will, and watch Israel fall and sort of rejoice in it. Um, a fall or a curse or a judgment that becomes because of her idolatry, You read that and the destruction of all the Edomite and all the, if you will, pagan nations at the restoration. You read that and then you come to this book of Jonah. And it's a peculiar next book, right? It's a peculiar next book as it ties to this story and what it's trying to inform Israel with regard to. Now, as we come to the book of Jonah, mind you, Jonah's from a different century. Jonah, again, is from the century he's writing prior to the fall of Assyria, I mean, not fall of Syria, sorry. Part of the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, to Assyria. Prior to the fall of um, the southern kingdom to Babylon. Jonah is an actual real prophet. 2 Kings 14.25 refers to him. Okay? This is not mythology. This is a true story. And he's a prophet. But who does the book of Jonah focus on? Does it focus on Israel? Does it focus on the nations? Who does it focus on? Yeah, and, and here's the thing. So the Assyrians, Nineveh, Nineveh is, in a, is the capital city of Assyria. Okay? But actually the book focuses on Jonah, the prophet himself. Right? And his relationship to their, to their enemy nation of the northern kingdom uh, or the, the, the nation of Assyria, right? Um, but it's an interesting prophet because most of the prophecy, if you will, or this book is really about Jonah, right? And as, if you will, as the representative of God's people, right? Jonah sort of stands in a sort of federal um, headship, if you will, as a sort of representative for Israel or, or Israel and Judah in general and their attitude toward foreign nations. Well, I mean, he's the only reluctant prophet... It's usually the people say, of Israel saying, shut up, we don't want to hear from the prophets, right? And the prophets are like, it's like fire my bones, I have to speak, you know, Jeremiah, okay? Um, Jonah's the one, it's like, you need to speak, and Jonah's like, I'm hightailing it out of here, I'm going as far in the opposite direction as I can, okay? Uh, I don't want to speak, right? So look at Jonah 1 with that. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, Nineveh, again, capital city of Assyria. It's not too long after this that the the Assyrian Empire will come in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, and carry them off. That comes... No, Syria, I'm not calling on you. Um, Oh, yeah, the true Assyria. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. I sometimes think this phone is carrying off its own captives. But, um, so he's co- told, go and go and call out against that city. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Um, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went up on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You guys notice the repetitiveness of that? Okay, just want you to pick up on it. He wants to go away from the presence of the Lord He wants to go to Tarshish. Now, why? If you look at a map, he's going in the exact opposite direction, really wanting to sail across the Mediterranean um, from this place. What you want to know as well about Jews is they're not big seafarers. They're not big fans of the sea, right? Leviathan is there. If you notice, their capital is not on seaports. It's inland, right? Um, Which is unusual for the peoples. So... um, but here's a Jewish prophet who's like, get me on a boat and I will sail as far away as I can, right? Um, and, and, and if you will, sort of Leviathan ends up swallowing him, right? Um, so he gets on and flees the presence of the Lord. He refuses to be the prophet he's called to be. Um, let me keep going. So like I said, Jonah's written in the mid-8th century, um, and what, what I want to look at as we, draw, as we walk through this, as we see Jonah flee the opposite direction and then be called back, is this idea that Jonah's demonstrating that God's heart is for the nations, um, and Israel's heart is like the nations. Notice my use of those prepositions. Um, God's heart is for the nations, and Israel's heart is like the nations, um, they, they, they have the same kind of heart as them, which is what I want to drive at. So he goes on, but the Lord hurled a great went, a wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the, shi- the ship threatened to break up. You're going to see this, the Lord hurled, the Lord appointed. This kind of language of the sovereign appointment of the Lord is going to come through again and again. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. I mean, he's just sleeping right through this massive crisis, um, not because of his trust in the Lord, but it's, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like this story of he's, he has decided to be completely and utterly ambivalent. I just don't want to do anything the Lord has called me to. Um, So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper, right? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Notice you're just seeing the Lord right behind this whole thing, making it real clear who the problem is, right? Well, it falls on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Who made the sea and the dry land? It's typical, incidentally, for God's prophets whenever they speak to pagans to take them all the way back to the creation account. Typical, the God I speak for is the God who created all things. When they'll speak to, um, when they speak to non-pagans, other so Jews, they're going to say the God of Abraham, right, or the God of our fathers, etc. But when they speak to a pagan, they'll go right back to the creation account, the God who created all things. Um, so he mentions that. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So now it's not because they're prophets that he knows they're fleeing the presence of the Lord. It's because why? He told them, okay? So don't overthink the story. Jonah's there. There's a big storm. They wonder immediately. Um, Notice their instinct. Immediately, Which one of us has sinned against the gods? Okay, Um, That's not how we tend to think when something like this happens. Um, But that was definitely how they tend to think. The gods have been been made unhappy in some way. This is why it's happening. It's a pretty typical polytheistic, animistic kind of worldview. If something's gone wrong, the gods must be upset. We must have done something to tick them off. Now, in this case, it happens to be true, right? In this case, it isn't just a storm. And what you're going to learn about the theology of the Bible is it's never just a storm or an earthquake or anything else. God is always at work establishing his sovereign purposes, though it's not always because God has been displeased um, that a particular thing happens. In other words, specifically displeased. All calamity that comes is because of sin so the general displeasure of God. But not all calamity has a specific cause. Do you guys follow me on that? Like a correspondence, Jonah sinned, here's a storm. Not all calamity comes that way, but it all ultimately comes as part of the judgment of the Lord for sin generally. Now look what happens there. Um, he, he they knew, They knew he fled. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great, great tempest has come upon you. It's interesting here. I'm not exactly sure what Jonah's getting at. Is it just like, hey, maybe I should repent. Let me repent and tell the Lord, take me back to the land um, and I will now go to Nineveh. Nope. Throw me into the ocean. Right? Into the sea. Um, <laughs> it's it's fascinating, right? Okay, so he's just ready to be. Nope. Because it's like he won't throw into the sea. Yep. Yep. No, you need to throw me in. So pick me up, throw me in the sea, the sea may quiet down for you. Now watch it goes on to say Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord. Now, interesting, they, cro- they actually call out to the Lord of Israel here, right? Um, that Notice all caps, right? Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. It's an interesting turn of events. Who cares more for who? The prophet of Israel caring more for the pagans or the pagans caring more for the prophet of Israel? Yeah, the pagans actually care more for the prophet of Israel or for Israel than Israel does for them. Um, It's a fascinating kind of judgment coming down on Israel, you notice, right out of what we just came out of in Obadiah where the pagans like the Edomites or the nations are rejoicing in the fall of Israel, sitting back passively while their plunder is happening. Yet, here you have pagans trying to save the prophet of Israel, right? So they picked up Jonah um, and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Fascinating. Don't have time to get into that, but let's keep going. And the Lord let's, so there's Jonah's first call and Jonah's response. Not good, right? Let's go to Jonah's rescue um, if you will. God's rescue of the rebellious prophet. Look there. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So the Lord appointed the storm, right? Now the Lord has appointed a great fish. Okay? He had Appointed a great wind, now a great fish. The fish swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now this will get picked up by Jesus later. It's gonna actually be referenced as Sheol. Anybody know what Sheol is? Sheol is the place of the dead. It's not quite hell, it's Gehenna. But Sheol is like the place of the dead. It's where you you know it's 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 like the grave. Right? The grave. So that's how the fish is going to be talked about by Jonah here in a minute. Um, he goes in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. See, that's why Jesus will use Jonah compar- comparatively with his own um, death and resurrection, because the belly of the fish is like the grave. Right And Jonah will, if you will, resurrect from the grave. Um, You heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So even while he's in the fish praying, if you will, he's already trusting in God's, if you will, bringing his life up from Sheol, from the pit, resurrecting him, delivering him from the great fish. So he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your into your holy temple those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but i with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what i avowed i will pay salvation belongs to the lord so who's this who's the one who saves The Lord, does Jonah do anything to deserve this salvation that, that he's going to get? No, he knows it. So he cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord. I want to emphasize that again. Who does salvation belong to? The Lord. Not to the prophet, not to Israel, not to the willing, to the Lord, right? Sinclair Ferguson, when he preached a sermon called What Jonah Learned, which is worth listening to, by the way, it's on the Philadelphia Conference of Reformed Theology I don't remember which year, maybe 06, 05, right in there. There's sermons for Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. He preached a sermon called What Jonah Learned. And he talks about um, how Jonah was a Calvinist, right? And it's, you know, and so he's, he's, he's being intentionally humorous. But he comes to this part and says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon, out upon the dry land. And Sinclair said, the reason the fish spat him out is because it was an Arminian fish, right? And so, anyway, okay. Um, So he goes on, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out uh, upon the dry land. Now, now notice that. So the Lord brings the tempest. The Lord appoints the fish. The Lord speaks to the fish and spits him out on the dry land, okay? Okay. So Jonah is rescued, this rebellious prophet, if you will, is rescued by the Lord from his own um, destruction, right? Now, chapter three, Jonah will be commissioned again, and this time he'll obey, okay? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, right? Okay, Jonah, you didn't listen the first time. Now it's coming the second time. This is quite gracious of the Lord, incidentally. What did the Lord have the right to do when Jonah fled to Tarshish the first time? Just take him out, utterly judge him. But here's the Lord's kindness toward Jonah, right? Um, He saves him. And Jonah repents, right? And the Lord saves him. Then the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. If you think about that, to walk across the city, it took three days. Um, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Notice this kind of language. You see it again in Jeremiah. It's idiom, prophetic idiom. It's like everyone from the kings to the infants were repenting, right? From the wealthy to the poor. They're all repenting, um, believing judgment's coming. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So disaster does not come upon Assyria at this point. Now you'll, when you fast forward a um, hundred years or so, it will come on them under the Babylonian Empire. Right? But it does not and we'll see that in a future prophet, but it does not come on Assyria here, right? there's some kind of repentance, um, some kind of trusting the Lord to forgive. So they look to him, and off they go. Um, And the Lord's kind to them. So you have pagans hearing the rebuke of the Lord, trusting him and repenting, whereas um, God's own prophet, his own people, um, if you will, struggle to do so. Uh, Notice what Jonah is doing. It's not only what he's doing, but he's not painting, um, if you will, a a good picture of Israel here. Uh, You know, if you read Obadiah, the nations are wicked, Israel's righteous in some way, right? Or almost comes across like that. Now you come to Jonah, the nations aren't nearly as bad as Israel, right? What is it? You know, um, it's essentially Israel's like the nations, it's what he's getting at. No, notice how much Jonah is going to demonstrate that Israel is just like Edom, who sits by passively, even rejoicing in the fall of another. Chapter 4, Jonah's displeasure in God's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is not what you expect from a revival preacher, right? Comes in, preaches a gospel message, and the crowd repents and comes to Christ and the revival preacher sits exceedingly angry and displeased, right? He was exceedingly angry. I mean, think about the, the massive size of this kind of revival in Nineveh. From the greatest to least of them, they're all repenting, turning to the Lord and being forgiven. You're talking about um, at least 120,000 people. That's a pretty big revival meeting right? coming to the Lord, and Jonah is ticked off. He's upset about it. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? Now you know why he flees. Here you go. Want to know why Jonah fled? It wasn't because Jonah was afraid, right? It's, uh, aside from the Veggie tale story, he was not, you know, upset and afraid of the Ninevites because they slapped people with fish, right? Okay, that's not the issue. The Assyrians are brutal, murderous people against Israel. Jonah hates them. So look what he says. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's fascinating because that's, that's a quotation of what passage? Anybody know where that language comes from? Yeah, it comes from Exodus 34, right? I think verse 6. And he, so here he is applying something that is told to God's people Israel. And Jonah's saying, I know you're that kind of God. And you're going to be that kind of God even to pagan nations. You guys following that? Okay. That's language that Israel thinks about. This is how our God, covenant God is toward us. But now Jonah's like, I know this is how you're going to be toward these pagan nations. And that's why I don't want to go. So why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Because he knows the Lord's going to be what? Gracious and merciful. And that's not what he wants for this pagan nation, the Assyrians. He doesn't want grace and mercy. He wants judgment and destruction. Look what he goes on. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. I mean, this guy is having a major temper tantrum, right? Okay. (laughs) He's, he is. I just would rather die then. Right. Um, If you're going to save these pagan people, instead of utterly judging them, just take my life, cast me into the sea. I don't want to go there. I refuse. I don't want to see those people saved. I want to see them destroyed. Yep. Oh yeah, it was the Ninevites were brutally murderous toward Israel. Assyrians were in general. I'm not either. That's right. That's exactly right, and that's why the story, um, I think, is so poignant, because they're about as bad a people as you could get, and Jonah hates them. It's, if you think, it's, it's easier for us historically to locate it. Imagine if um, the Lord sent um, a Jewish man to call Hitler and the Nazis to repentance, and they repented, and the Lord decided to bless them. Instead of judging them for what they did, uh, do you think that Jewish prophet would have been happy with that outcome? Praise the Lord! They all repented, right? God's going to bless them now. Okay, similar kind of situation. So you understand his distress. I think though, the, this is intentionally outrageous because the the Lord is going to is is comparing. Israel, to the nations, saying, you're no better, and I'm gracious to you. Gracious to you, right? It goes on. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Right? Verse four. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. It's kind of a tent. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. See, like the Edomites in Obadiah, he wants to sit aside and watch God's wrath fall. Right? And judgment, he is so much like them. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. Okay? Notice that, he appointed a plant. And made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's like, oh, the Lord gave me relief from the sun as I sit on this hill waiting for the destruction of the Ninevites, right? But when day dawned, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, right? Again, sovereignty of God in this, appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Are you guys getting the the point here? Okay. Scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Right. Okay. The suicidal prophet, if you will. Right. Um, Now look what goes on. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. His anger here is, is, is sort of this emphatic, almost cursing. Yes, I do well I, to be angry. Angry enough to die. Angry enough to die over what? Notice what we're talking about right now. Over a plant that shaded him, Right? And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Now now notice the things he's wanting to say about this plant. You pity the plant. Now by pity, it means it's this kind of language. We think pity. It's like you feel sorry. He didn't feel sorry for the plant. When you hear the word pity, he's not feeling sorry for the plant. The idea is you wanted me to spare the plant. The idea here is you want the plant spared, right? Now, you didn't make that plant. You didn't labor to grow that plant. So you didn't create that plant. You didn't labor, if you will, to preserve, nurture, grow up that plant. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, And that plant came up in a day, went away in a night. It's such a short-lived temporary thing. Didn't create it, you didn't preserve it, it's barely a breath of, of of life in that plant, and you want the plant spared. And should I not pity Nineveh or want Nineveh spared? That great city in which there are more than one hundred and twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand for the left from their left and also much cattle. Notice this cattle is more worthwhile than the plant. Cattle lasts longer than a plant, right? I created the cattle, um, and there's more than 120,000 persons there. Persons are more valuable than the plant, exceedingly more valuable than the plant or the cattle. And notice what he says. They don't know their right hand from their left. He's, he's talking about their ignorance, right? There's 120,000 people who are ignorant in their sin, They're in ignorance. This is the kind of thing you're going to see with Paul. And Timothy, when he says, I'm the chief of sinners, right? He goes on to say, but God did what? He he opened my eyes and he says, I was actually ignorant. That's what Paul says. Though he was murderously, zealously opposed to the Christians, he says he was ignorant, right? You're going to see that time of um, ignorance the Lord overlooked, right? That sort of um, language. Ignorance is not referencing the idea that they know nothing. Ignorance is referencing blindness and sin. Right? It's not the idea they have no information. Okay? Paul knew all about the Messiah in the Old Testament. He was around, um, at least in, is in Jerusalem, Um, not too many years after Pentecost, right? Probably, arguably, Paul would have been present at the crucifixion. I say that arguably because he's a religious leader of the age that he would have arguably been around for the Passover that year. So Paul's not ignorant of the facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, at least the claims of resurrection. He's not ignorant of, of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, you know, ignorant in the sense of knowledge. He's ignorant in the sense of hard-heartedness, ears to hear but cannot hear. Make sense? Okay? He's ignorant in the sense of being dead in his sin in that way. Right? Um, that is the problem with Nineveh. Right? Right? They don't know the right hand from their left. It's not that the law of God hasn't been written on their hearts, Romans 2, in the sense that they have a conscience. You guys know conscience, con, with science, knowledge. You sin with knowledge. In that sense, no one's ignorant, right? To be ignorant means to have no knowledge. In one sense, no one's ignorant. You've been given knowledge, you have a conscience. You know that's right and that's wrong. We're talking about another kind of ignorance, which is this sort of spiritual ignorance or deafness, dullness, spiritual hard hardness of heart right and that's what he's getting at the Ninevites are spiritually dead right Israel has the the blessing of the law and the prophets and the covenants and just go down the list of all the blessings they have Um, and the Lord looks at Jonah and says you want me to spare the plant You didn't make it. You didn't preserve it. It lasts basically a day, but you don't want me to spare 120,000 people who are dying in ignorance in their sin. You want me to spare them, right? I made them. I preserved them. They live way longer than a plant. They're of far more value than a plant. You don't want me to preserve them, spare them, right? Um, And so Israel, as I said at the beginning, Um, Jonah demonstrates that God's heart is for the nations and Israel's heart is like the nations, right? Um, In some sense, Jonah is this story that um, is quite telling about the state of Israel's heart, right, toward the nations. That they're all alike guilty of sin, all alike needing grace and mercy, And that God is um, desirous to show grace and mercy not just to Israel, but to the nations. Right? Um, And that will come through Israel. So, um, any questions? 705 will take on Micah, though not next week, just so you're clear. Uh, Micah will come. Um, Micah will come in. I'm two weeks. Next week, I'm, I'm gone at the Banner of Truth conference from Tuesday through Thursday. So I won't have time to prepare Micah. I mean, I have it mostly prepared, but I don't have time to finish it. Um, and then we'll get to Nahum, Habakkuk, etc. No, you, when, you, when you read, I encourage you to read Micah. Watch for these kinds of themes. See what's developing. Um, and, and Nahum, you might want to read right away because you're going to get it. Nahum is an oracle concerning Nineveh. Right, which comes later than Jonah, but um, it's concerning Nineveh. So, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for you, um, for your word, for its um, clarity, um, the relentless way in which you continue to reveal yourself um, to your people, pointing us ultimately to our need for your Son, We pray we would continue to look to him, to trust in him, to give thanks for him. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, By the way, Brian, just as a total side note, it's the same in the Septuagint, it's just, it's megalane. It's the same in both cases in the Greek. You do, you do.